This episode of See Here is brought to you by Trousers. Episode 42 of the See Here podcast. It's been sponsored by the late Douglas Adams. And as per usual, I'm joined by the finest podcasting crew that money can buy. On the left of my Skype screen is Mr. Tim Merrill. Good evening. Where's my check? Jeez. <laughs> Bounced. In, yeah. the, in the middle of my Skype screen from Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And I just do it for the love. I don't need the money. <laughs> well... All you need is cash, though. Money can't buy me love. Right? Well, I walked into that one, yeah. <laughs> Wait, we are not tonight the terrific trio, but tonight we are the post-Fab 4. There's a Fab 4, there's a pre-Fab 4, which we're going to be discussing fairly shortly, but tonight we are the post-Fab 4 because we've gone and invited a very special guest, a man who has watched the film under discussion tonight, The Rattles, All You Need Is Cash. He has seen this film 50 times, even if he's exaggerating, He's probably at least seen it 40. So on the right side of my Skype screen from Ireland, I'm not sure, are you in Belfast? Mr. Colin McCone. Good evening, Colin. Oh, no, it's morning for you. Morning, Colin. Yes, good morning. As we say over here, about you. <laughs> Before we talk about the rattles, all you need is cash. Colin, give us a little bit of your background. Now, you are on our Facebook group, but you have many strings to your bow. You are actually in the film business. Give us a bit of a rundown as to who you are what you do, and what your previous connection to See Here actually is. Yeah, well, I've been working, I started in, in the film business as a as a tea boy, carrying gear and carrying coffee, and I've worked worked for about 10 years all the way through all elements of the of the, um, the film business until I, for the last 20 years, I've been a producer, a director, uh, worked a lot in the arcane dark arts of story, script development, and film financing. And that's brought me to a lot of mentoring a lot of younger people. And um, I suppose our big connection with See Here is that you've previously done an episode about the film I worked on, Good Vibrations, mm. with um, Glenn Leyburn and Lisa Baristasa. One of the pr- proudest things I've ever done in my life because it, I love music, I love film. Um, it brought those things together and, uh, and everyone involved in the team loved music. But also it was the first time that we felt that we'd made a film that could communicate the real experience of growing up in Northern Ireland. The listeners can go back to uh, that episode and hear what we had to say. But really, I think you guys did it exquisitely well. It, there was, it was a stupidly happy film. I came away so incredibly happy with it. And yet the tensions between the differing sides in Belfast during the Troubles were made all too real in the film. So you successfully combined drama and comedy plus as well really sort of got the essence very well of what made Terry Hooley's personal life so interesting, what thrilled him, but also how in many respects his life 
had a lot of sad strings to it as well. And uh, yep, you encompass that exceedingly well. So in story development, what was your actual role in the film? What would happen? Would they come up with a script and you say, no, take it back, not good enough? What, what was your role? It's a dark art. Glenn Patterson and, and Colin Carby, who were the two writers, uh, Colin Carby was m- mostly a music journalist and, and short story writer. And, and Glenn Patterson was um, a novelist. And for about 10 years, they decided they wanted to do this, but it was just slowly ticking along. And, no, and in fact, when I first met them around 2000, I said I didn't think there would be a story there. It took us about another 15 years to get something working. What, what you do is you, you listen to what the writers want to do. You just support. It's usually about clarity and simplicity. You know, it's about making things really clear for an audience. And once things are clear in a story, it just becomes richer and richer. So you work a lot like, you know, sculpturally, you, you hack away at a big block of marble until there's an image of a person there. And then as you get down closer to the, the, the body of the sculpture, you start to use cloths to just polish. You know, so we, we work a lot in trying to get a biopic is a very unusual thing. It's a long story of someone's life. Whereas a film often is very much a compressed story. So you, we're working with what is the, how do you compact the important pieces of someone's life in, into 90 minutes? So a lot of it was around that idea of where do we start, where do we finish? And the original story start, started earlier and finished a lot later in terms of, of the story of Northern Ireland. That was a lot of the work. And then just even simple things like how do we tell the John Peel sequence, the one that sort of the audience all jump out of their seats at when he plays the record second. You know, it's very delicate work with the writer to, tr- to come up with a solution to something that seemingly simple as that. So, you know, one of the things was we said, it's not that John Peel plays the record two times, but that he plays it twice. And that's how the writers asking that question was the way the writers came up with the fantastic idea of delaying a hearing teenage kicks until the second time. Yeah. Yeah, that's so we, fantastic. That scene when they're they're outside on the street and they're screaming, it's on John Peel, he's playing the song. Like, that is just so amazing. I, I love that bit in the in the film so much. Yeah, and it's, it's it always works with audiences. It's it's just and that's what we do it for is you know, the audience reaction when, when people jump jump out of their seats oh, or yeah. punch the air. Oh yeah. I remember finding the actual audio clip of the real John Peel saying, talk amongst yourselves, I'm going to turn this over. <laughs> and think, oh my gosh, that's how special it was. Someone's actually gone and thrown that up on YouTube, had a recording of it. It was yeah, obviously a very, very historical moment. Uh, look, just very briefly, my 30-second summary, once again, of the film, what I really loved, and because you've already gone and touched on the fact that doing a biopic can be a very dangerous thing, and that's something we've gone and discussed many times on the program, but where I think Good Vibrations so completely worked was that it didn't seem like a checklist of Terry Hooley's life. It was, you know, everything seemed to flow naturally into each other, and it didn't matter on a timeline where it started and where it finished. It just seemed like, here's the story that we wanted to convey to you. I mean, there are many side stories in Terry Hooley's life, but this is the one that we want to convey to you, and it doesn't matter if it starts in 1973 and it ends in whatever, 1979, you're not going to know that it's just 
you're going to get the thread of the story without it seeming like, have we ticked this bit off? Good check. And I think that's something that a lot of other biopics just don't get. I think, yeah, we, I think... Wa- we wanted it to be a fiction in a way. You know, it is a myth-making piece, but also one of the things, you, you, when you're making a, f- a film of that, even though it is based on the real world, you sort of want to make it work like a fiction. Mm-hmm. Right. Music was able to overcome or able to reach certain spots or get people through times of incredible stress or incredible strife. Above all, it was the music that got everybody through. And I mean, that doesn't matter when it happened. It just happened progressively and it happened continuously. So I think that's an important thing that you kind of look at it, you know. Uh, And what's fantastic, if you look at the credits, so you have... Glenn and Lisa, who are the directors, massive music fans. David Holmes, who's their producing partner and, and does the music for them, is you know, uh, composer, but also just a huge fan of music. The two writers, Glenn and Colm, again, massive music fans. And then you have producers from uh, Snow Patrol, um, again, there's sort of a, a love of music and a love of Terry and the shop. Nick, who's the editor, massive music fan. So there's just there's a concentration of everybody involved is all focused on their own shared passion of music, which is what the story is celebrating. You know, so that just that background love all comes through. Right, right. Uh, before we sort of head into talking about the focus of tonight's film. Are you able to give the listening audience and the gents what your next big project is? Because this is very exciting, I thought. Well, I, I work a lot with um, with Glenn Leeson in Canada Blanks on the cro- across the slate of the things that they're doing. Uh, we're doing an, a, a larger film, about, about, which is a sort of companion piece to Good, Good Vibrations, about someone who came to Belfast. But most excitingly for your audience here, and for, even for myself, is that the Glenn Leeson have been working for a long time now on a a very compressed, it's not a biopic, it's a very compressed piece, slice of life of uh, Joe Strummer called wow. Joe Public. Wow, that's going to be amazing. Mm. You were telling me um, yesterday that it's set like over a weekend? Yeah, yeah, a very specific period of time. So, yeah, again, that's another part where you go. It avoids the biopic problem. The so, one I've been yeah. waiting for coming out of Ireland that they've been, you know, in production for for years and years and years, and I hear it's, it's going to happen, then it won't happen. Is the one guy that I've always loved to death is Phil Linnett. They've always tried to put that out, and I still haven't heard anything that, you know, Philomena has given the nod to it, his mom, and I don't know anything about what's going to happen with it. Last I heard, There's a someone. Ca- a casting call at the moment for the lead. They're trying to find the lead. Right, and that's so hard to find a guy that's that dynamic and to find somebody that can do that. I don't know. Would they be looking for someone who just looked like Phil Linnett, or would they be looking for someone who was an actual musician, or an actual bass player, or the whole package? Or- I think the call has both listed on it, so I saw a casting call for it. Yeah, they are definitely looking for someone who can play. There you go. Our man in the industry. You heard it first here, folks. That's very exciting news. I hope that uh, comes up. But also your Joe Strummer film, immensely looking forward to that. So we'll obviously get you and Glenn and Lisa to come back on the show as a world podcast exclusive you'll hear it here first folks before it goes to leonard moulton or film spotting or any of those tiny podcasts anyway what we're going to do now we're going to go to a little bit of a break play the trailer for tonight's film under discussion the film is the rattles all you need is cash we'll be back in a moment you're listening to see here episode 42 who are the rattles i don't know people were proud and double back alley papers were loud Whatever so highly people would shout, joking about the smoke and the soot, 
don't know. Uh, is it really the Russells? <laughs> it might be somebody else. We're getting wet in a shower because basically we talked it over chastity of myself and we came to the conclusion that uh, civilization was nothing more than an effective sewage system. that the prefab four, Dirk, Nasty, Stig and Barry, the Ruttles, the singing phenomena who made the 60s what they are today, here it was, that indeed, here was the... Do you think they'll ever get back together again? I hope not. Who are the Ruttles? And we're back from break. Thanks for listening to the program today. Thanks for listening to any programs that you might have listened to in the past. We're happy to have you on board. My name's Morris. I'm being joined by Tim, Bernie, and our very, very special guest, Colin. Uh, so let's just give a few of the uh, technical arrangements, a few of the technical details. So the film is The Rattles, All You Need Is Cash, released in 1978. The directors are Eric Idle and Gary Weiss. Uh, written by Eric Idle, starring Eric Idle, Neil Innes, Ricky Fatar, John Halsey, with uh, smaller cameo parts by Michael Palin, Mick Jagger, Paul Simon, and some guy I've never heard of before, George Harrison, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and a wonderful little cameo by Gilda Radner. Uh, Billy Murray's in there, too. Sorry, who? who is? Bill Murray. Oh, oh, my gosh. How did I forget Bill? Bill Murray the K. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and another person who should get mentioned is a fellow called Ollie Halsall, and why he should be mentioned in particular is he was the um, the voice of Eric Idle and the real musician. That Eric, I mean, Eric can play guitar, but not not in the same league as Neil Innes, Ricky Fatar, and John Halsey. So Ollie subbed for him in the studio, and there's also a fellow called Andy Brand who plays bass. But Ollie Halsall gets a very brief cameo role, which I will mention as we get to it. I think it's it's a very funny moment. I think it's worthy of its own uh, discussion. So the film was released in 1978, and the IMDb description is uh, charts the adventures of the Prefab Four, possibly the most famous band of all time. Eh, a bit shit, but never mind. Brother, but I've just seen your date outside. He's with 
So, Colin, you're the guest. You've went and told me that you've watched this film a multitude of times. <laughs> so, give us a little bit of your personal history with All You Need Is Cash. Do you remember the first time you saw it and whether you were attracted to it right from the beginning? Despite being from County Armagh, I actually lived in California in 1976 and 77. And I... I, I I vividly remember Eric Idle doing a drag racing sketch on Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. which was the episode that they showed the first piece of um, of uh, the Ruttles, the the repeat of the thing. So as a kid, I remember, that was in my memory. Massive fa fan of, of comedy and. Um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd grown up listening to the, the Goon Show on BBC Radio and then um, radio co comedy and lots of te television comedy. And in the early teens, my uncles had um, the vinyl of Pythons mm -hmm. and some rolls. So it, video, we didn't have VHS and, and there wasn't many repeats in those days. So it took a while before I got to see the rolls in my early teens. But huge Beatles fan as well. So it was just everything coming together, love of music and comedy. Um, and the Pythons all in one big package. It was just like, it was the perfect thing. And I think I taped it off television. And so we had a tape that kicked around between me and my friends. And it was just a, a party tape that we would watch uh, over and over again. Hmm. Um, all through. So it's been a, a staple through all, all of my life. Um, it just, it, it is. The bizarre coincidences of us talking about jo joining up in this episode and this to be the film it was just like ah, well, this is a total blessing. It's a it's a more marvelous film and a film that I've just I've, I've watched as I said repeatedly throughout my life. Wow. Uh, actually, before we sort of go any further, I'm feeling very very embarrassed. I should state that tonight's film was actually requested by my good friend and our listener Barry Noble. So uh, Barry, hope you're enjoying the show and we do justice to uh, the discussion. So my apologies. We miss you, Bear. I'm sorry for not mentioning it before. Please forgive me. Uh, so, yeah, I, Tim and Bernie, well, I'll start with you, Tim. Did you actually see All You Need Is Cash when it first came out, or had you seen it over the years before tonight's discussion? Well, it's funny because Colin just took a lot of the words right out of my mouth because I remember that a lot of people might not remember back in the day, Saturday Night Live, they used to do these short films that they would broadcast as part of, you know, uh, the, the actual show. And, like, some of them, they were done by Michael O'Donoghue or other people like that. And that's where I first saw part of the Ruddles film, you know. And then on top of that as well, my public library, they would, you know, you could go and you could borrow, um, sign out records, and they would have like a classical section and a rock section and then they had a comedy section. So that's where I actually got the vinyl of the Python stuff and I got into um, Neil Innes and then also I got the Ruddles um, recordings that came out on vinyl and I was able to play that. And I was just in the comedy because of Dr. Demento and there used to be a lot of um, – on Sunday evenings, Toronto Radio would have these two comedy shows – Chum FM and CFNY, we broadcast like from 9 to 10 and then from 10 to 11. So it was two hours of straight comedy every Sunday night. And I listened to my, you know, FM radio, my little transistor, and they played Ruddles all the time on there. And that's the that's the first time I really got to hear any of it. Bernie, do you have any recollections of seeing Rutland Weekend Television? Uh, I do vaguely recall Rutland Weekend Television. It was one of those shows that's never really been repeated. Mm. 
So whereas something like Monty Python has been on countless times and has been available in lots of different formats, Rutland was something that, as I say, I've got vague memories of seeing at the time. Uh, when would it have been? Sort of late seventies, I guess. Nineteen seventy-six, I think it was. It was yeah. two so, two short seasons. Yeah, I would have been about five or six years old, but mm. um, I do vaguely recall seeing it in that weird way. You do as uh, as a child, you catch parts <laughs> of these things, and it goes completely over your head, but it weirdly gets ingrained in there anyway. But I'm I'm kind of the fly in the ointment here because um, a I'm. I hate to say it, guys, and I, I know Morris and Tim know this, but I'm not a huge Beatles fan. Mm. And B, this is a first time viewing for me. I've not seen it before. Okay. Yeah, calm down, people. I'm, I'm sorry. No, to that's that's you, a good but... thing. It's a good thing because you, you're bringing a fresh perspective. The interesting thing about it to me is not so much the Beatles connection, is more because obviously I grew up on Python. So it, and, and also. Not so much Saturday Night Live, but certainly all the alumni from this period of Saturday Night Live have kind of passed into the sort of general cultural consciousness and various other films. So I found it really interesting just coming at it from that point of view. I mean, to be honest, show how naive I was about this. I didn't even realise that this was a uh, a kind of Saturday Night Live, Lorne Michaels type production. Mm-hmm. So watching it and then, um, uh, you know, Bill Murray shows up and John Belushi and Gilda Radner, I'm like... Oh, okay. Maybe this has got something to do with Saturday Night Live. Right. So uh, <laughs> the story goes that Eric Idle went on to Saturday Night Live and was uh, co-hosting the show, and he made some gag about offering the Beatles three hundred dollars to get back together and make an appearance right then and there on right. Saturday Night Live. And he said, "Oh, yeah, okay. and they, they already have gotten together, and I have the footage." And then he showed the the Rutland Weekend Television. Oh, right. Okay. Him. So that's how. The Saturday Night Live connection was, I think, you know, Lorne Michaels, who you mentioned, offered Eric the chance to go and expand it to uh, a full telly movie. Speaking of uh, the Beatles and Saturday Night Live, did you guys ever happen to see that other skit with Pete Best? I don't think I have. Where it, would, it, would, it was Pete Best sitting in his kitchen, and every time the doorbell would ring, he'd run to the door, and his wife would say, It's not them, Pete. <laughs> And then and then he's like, oh, it's the mailman. Then ding dong, we run back. It's not them, Pete. Oh shit. Okay. You know, like, yeah, it was so funny. So okay, so I want to come back to you, Bernie, as someone who is not a Beatles fan, and I can't believe that we're friends. Yeah. But as <laughs> as, as someone, hey, I, I don't outright hate the Beatles, Morris. It's just I, I can I'd certainly appreciate what they did. I can appreciate the craft there. It's just one of those things that, for some reason, they've just never quite clicked with me. So, so I can this, only apologise. So this episode sorry, isn't going to. So this episode isn't going to turn into another Ishtar, is it? Uh, well, we all enjoyed Ishtar, didn't we? <laughs> oh, no, no, don't, hang on, don't get Tim upset. Um, <laughs> oh, apart no. from Tim, of course. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, now, serious question here is: Does the film work if you're as someone who's not a Beatles fan, you would have made minimal effort to sort of like look into the minutiae. I mean, you might know all the big things. Yeah, they play for the Queen, the Royal Variety performance. Sure, you, yeah, you know the yeah. Thing. But well, a, lot of, um, a lot of smaller details that this film parodies would be sort of like natural, everyday business yeah. as usual thing for the diehard Beatles obsessive. Did these things work for you as someone who doesn't well, necessarily follow every detail? 
that's that was forefront in my mind whilst I was watching it, thinking that it's hitting all the beats that I know and everybody would know, all the uh, you know the kind of the uh, the legendary things that occurred. But as I was watching, I was thinking, I'm sure there's going to be lots of little things in here which I'm probably not sure. picking up on because I'm not the uh, you know your usual Beatles obsessive type. So. Um, and I, I think it worked perfectly for me anyway. But if I knew that stuff, you know, obviously there would have been a little bit of a deeper uh, nod and a wink to a mm. blind bat to paraphrase yeah. Eric Idle. I would have probably gotten a little more from it. Yeah, certainly. But, so. but overall, you did sort of find that the overall bits, like, did it work for you as a film? We'll go, obviously, to smaller things as we go along, you know, specific favorite bits or bits that you didn't think worked in their own right. But do you think just like as a film, if you were to come down, descended from another planet and you understood what human I, Yeah, meant- no, I think it did. I think it did work. I think um, it does a very good job. And I mean, this is probably considering it was made in 78, it was still relatively right. close. You know, it was only sort of 10 years, 15 years gone from when all this stuff was really happening. So it does a very good job of sort of it gets the kind of the feel of the period that is depicting right. Whereas if it had been made 20 years later, you can kind of you would easily see the joins a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it was, I think, closer to uh, to the period it was depicting, it works very well in that respect. Right. I think a problem a problem with current state of film these days, just my opinion, is that a lot of film today tries to reach such a broad audience. They want to reach so many different kinds of people and different tastes that it really often dilutes the subject matter. And yeah, I think, it plans everything out, doesn't it? Right, yeah. right. And I think that with this film... You know, it goes specifically for the Beatles fanatics, but I think that even though the detail is there, even even those Beatles purists and, you know, everyone that knows every little scrap of ephemera, they're not going to laugh at everything anyways, because everybody has their favorite bits and their their favorite little things that they find funny. So, you know, in, in one way, it's kind of irrelevant whether you're a Beatles fanatic or you're not because there are those things that are going to make you laugh and there's those things that won't. Okay. Yeah. So one thing I suppose to rem- remember is that that we're we're at a distance to it now, but actually they, this was massive cultural phenomena through oh, yeah. you know sixty four to seventy four. Yeah, so actually, yeah, yeah. And and it was so you know it was so focused that that was the centre of it that actually the the vast majority of people knew all these things. That's interesting because I, I'm really trying to work out whether that was in fact the case. I know that as the Beatles went on, the initial years were you know the the whirlwind of Beatle main. You know, between 63 to 65, I mean, apart from, I think, Hey Jude, every single that they put out still went to number one, but I don't think that in 69 it was necessarily the same millions of people who were following that might have been following in 63. There might have some of them grew older and developed different tastes and maybe some people had moved on to other aspects of rock music. Uh, and I know that their lives are always very, very public, but I've got a bunch of Beatles biographies and you know, from the distance of 2017, I don't know what was public knowledge. So like, you know, the, the whole thing of taking Ron Klein or in this film, Ron D. Klein as uh, their manager, I don't know how much of that was public knowledge at the time or how much of it, it, it only came as Beatles historians started to do an, an analysis of their history. You, you make that point saying, no, that you think that everything that they're mocking in this film was part of the broad spectrum of public knowledge about the Beatles. Well, I think that at that time, it's in some way, I, I look at the Beatles almost like the hula hoop. 
where it was just this kind of like Colin was saying, a cultural phenomena. Who's using a hula hoop today? Well, you know, where, where are we going to see the hula? the hula hoop showed up here? The hula hoop showed up there. I found that with the media back at that time, they would talk about, like, for example, in America with JFK, what kind of dog that JFK and Jackie got and what the dog was doing at the White House. And you're like, it's a dog. Like, why would you even have any interest in this? Right. But it's because it's all part of that popular culture, you know, that it, it gives you that kind of inside ticket. You know, that you feel like you're right there and you're a part of it all. And I, and, I, and I think there was a lot of that going on at the time. You have to consider, <laughs> too, that back at this time, I mean, they, there was um, all these publications. Like in America, there was a publication called 16 Magazine, and they had all these teeny bopper magazines, you know, strictly catered to girls, young teenage girls. What sandwich does Paul love? You know, well, what's John's favorite color? That's all yeah. it was. They, they just bast in all the ephemera i mean that's all they you know they marketed all of that to push it all to teenage girls that just lapped up well, that's every it. it's all, you know it's all a way of selling more isn't it because then you can if you have things like that in your magazine then you you know you just put the word beetles on the cover and you're going to sell a bunch more you know they got sick of being on that merry-go-round of what's your favorite color what what, what color do you like your girlfriend's hair to be and probably one uh, john did that interview with maureen cleave of, of the evening standard and got into trouble because he decided to have a serious conversation about the ridiculousness of the beetles being uh, bigger more than popular, rod more popular than <laughs> more popular yeah, than rod yeah. In 66, the Ruttles faced the biggest threat to their careers. Nasty, in a widely quoted interview, apparently had claimed that the Ruttles were bigger than God, and had gone on to say that God had never had a hit record. At times like these, when enemies come, the story spread like wildfire in America. Many fans burnt their albums. Many more burnt their fingers attempting to burn their albums. Album sales skyrocketed. People were buying them just to burn them. But in fact, it was all a ghastly mistake. Nasty, talking to a slightly deaf journalist, had claimed only that the Ruttles were bigger than Rod. Rod Stewart would not be big for another eight years. No, that, yeah. no, that was Ron Nasty. Yeah. So I, I wanted to actually just we, – we're talking about Beatles references, but one thing that I think that the film does exceptionally well is the, the attention to detail. I mean, yeah, sure, it's one thing to sort of – uh, change a couple of words, change a couple of names, and say, yeah, well, the Beatles went to uh, Bognor with with the Surrey Mystic. But what I think they did very, very well was, if they're going to do something like this, they did it completely right. And they'd have parodies of of photo of famous photos. So there's this uh, famous publicity shot of the four of them, I think in 1963, where Ringo's sitting on a chair and the other three of them are standing standing around him, and the the rattles equivalent with Barry Wom sitting on the chair, and the others sort of sitting in or standing in similar poses. Uh, when they appear on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, the, the camera angles are very similar to the camera angles that they did when they went on to sing "I want to uh, I want to hold your hand" on on his show, and they're they're doing "I must be in love." So it's all these little attention to detail. It's. I mean, I know that you know what you said a moment ago, Colin, about this still being very much in the public consciousness. But to make a film about it and get it so completely right with camera angles, with uh, little things that were said. So like Barry Wom said, I want to, I want to own a couple of hairdressers, which is 
something similar to what Ringo had gone and said. Um, well, does, that, does anybody know, is this the real first time of this? Because It's become totally ubiquitous now, you know, that sort of Zelig um, and, you know, um, Forrest Gump was the sort of big mainstream highlight of doing this sort of integrating old footage together. Right. Does anybody know if this is really the the beginning of it? I'm thinking of at least two other films, uh, one which was certainly a few years later, which was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, but I'm wondering if the Marty Feldman film, uh, the last remake of Beau Geste, might have come out before this okay. one, so this might not be the first one in that regard, but it's mm-hmm. certainly a very similar era. I wanted, to, I wanted to bring one thing up, what you were talking about, getting all the details right, and this is kind of a big question, right? But the one thing that came that came into my mind was that when you see a film like Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap isn't based on anyone in particular. It's loosely based on a whole bunch of different people and different bands and different scenarios. And a lot of people would say, well, that's a lot more creative than doing a film based on an actual band and just riffing on actual songs and riffing on actual moments. But I would disagree. I would say that it's a lot more difficult to do it precisely. Yeah, I I agree. If if you're making a film that's based on a whole bunch of bands and stories and what have you, you've got a much bigger kind of pool of things that you can draw on and parody. Mm -hmm. Whereas to to kind of narrow it down just to one band and one set of songs and to do it well, like this film does – I think that's a lot more difficult. I totally agree with you, Tim. Yeah, but to do it precisely, I mean, just yeah. to, to do it just with such, you know, like, for example, the Sullivan stuff, and even like you're saying, Morris, with the quotes and everything else. I mean, it's it's just, it's almost like you can go back and find footnotes to every little single thing in, in this film that you can relate it to an actual event, you know, or an actual moment. And look, in lesser hands, that could have gone completely wrong. Oh, yeah, that's my point. Yeah, that's yeah. my point. But, but I mean, look, having said that, I think that they're both very different beasts. I know that it's been quite easy to sort of go and put Spinal Tap and indeed any of the subsequent films by Christopher Guest. They're all mockumentaries and probably A Mighty Wind would be, you know, because it's musical, would be another good companion piece. But this is... Of, they're all mockumentaries, but they're all very different in their ways. And in fact, there was one thing that I was thinking about was that in a way, all you need is cash is not so much a progenitor for the mockumentaries that came after it. But I like to think that this is, in fact, I don't know if you want to call it the gold standard, but it certainly set the pace for real documentaries about bands that came. Because before this, I'm struggling to think, I mean, maybe there's The Last Waltz by the band and don't look back that DA uh, that Penny Baker had gone and well, made about Bob Dylan I mean, in the 60s. The, the Mercedes I, brothers, give me shelter. Yeah. Right, right. There's there's not much in so the way of talk, right. talking, talking heads type of devoted to music films. There's, I mean, there are obviously lots of other documentaries, but not necessarily that many where they're talking to people. What was it like? What did you observe at the time? There's in the music world, there's not been that much, and I think that all you need is cash might be an early example, and I'm sure that our listeners are probably going to say, you don't know what you're talking about, here's 10,000 more examples. But really, nowadays, rock documentaries with talking heads, it's they're a dime a dozen. They're standard, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. 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 But I don't think before 
all you need is cash. There were too many. So I like to think that this might have been an influence on the real thing, which is somewhat ironic. It's taking the piss out of documentaries, and yet it gets to be like a, a standard for real documentaries that came afterwards. It's the way how I look at it. So that's what gives it its great its great strength, as you say, Morris, because what Gary Weiss is doing is 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 making it as a documentary mm. and playing by the rules and doing it and the editing and the cutting of it and the, and all the choices are documentary choices, not fiction choices. Mm-hmm. And so I always think this is like you know the 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 man in the high castle. They discover this footage from the parallel universe and they realize something's not right. This feels like that footage in The Man in the High Castle. There is a <laughs> world in which the rules are the thing, you know what I mean? Right. It's so authentic. And, you know, you're talking about the detailing of it. You know, Polly Hamilton's the, the costume design. It's just when you sit back and look at it, the arrival in America, they, they're, they're carrying those little TWA or Pan Am bags. Yeah. There's no reason to it. You know, but the, uh, they've gone to the detailing of the coats, the hats, the hair, but also the bags. You know, it's mm-hmm. that, it's that perfect. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's funny you brought up Zelig early because that's another film this really reminds me of, and just the way, like you're saying, Colin, about the parallel universe, it's it has that kind of feeling to me as well. I wanted to. Um bring up a couple of references in particular that I found really, really funny very early on in the film. One of them, because the the Brian Epstein substitute is a, a character called Leggy Mountbatten. <laughs> I, I love the discussion. I think, was it his wife or his mother? I can't remember. Uh, who, no, his although, mom. His, his mom. His mother's talking about his his interest in going to, to uh, the cavern to see the rattles, and she's persisting on longer than the interview feels comfortable with. But To um, see the trousers. That's, yeah. right, that's right, yes. <laughs> and um, Eric Idle, as the narrator of the film, or as the documentarian, says that the name of the Leggy Mount Batten autobiography is a cellar full of toys <laughs> now I, I just i cracked up with that because uh, brian epstein's original uh, title for his autobiography was a cellar full of noise and john lennon uh, very unfairly uh, said why don't brian why don't you call it a cellar full of boys so that you know you got they're, they're very very clever here because you know a cellar full of goys so it, it's the yiddish word for gentile and you know brian epstein uh the see know, I, I i didn't know that those references <laughs> at all but that was probably the biggest laugh i had watching the film just <laughs> a cellar full of boys yes <laughs> so that was actually a, a triple whammy joke but i only got the one part of it right, right. So. leggy man back in his autobiography a cellar full of goys wrote of the excitement of those early days the other one i thought was really brilliant was the when i i thought they were totally taking the piss of uh of um lester bangs or those kind of journalists where they're talking to the the professor of narcotics <laughs> <laughs> when the guy's so the guy's so yeah. far up his ass he just disappears and i'm thinking this is brilliant because i would love to show every rock journalist today this footage and just say huh huh you know like <laughs> hello you know pitchfork hello you know like it's his enemy hello you know like it, it was just so it just nailed it for me perfectly that's that's one aspect it just gets me laughing so hard because it's just you know uh-huh yeah right okay yeah sure i didn't get it from him either so we had to go to new orleans <laughs> <laughs> another reference that i think worked really well and 
once again, this is something that you possibly have to be, you know, steeped in Beatles lore to appreciate, although you can certainly appreciate it on its own level, is that, you know, the Beatles at the time, due to the humour that they exhibited at their press conferences and the, and what they showed in A Hard Day's Night had often been compared to, you know, like a musical, a rock music version of the Marx Brothers. So quite fitting that the fifth Beatle, who they mentioned from the early Cavan days, who was supposed to be the Stu Sutcliffe Ooh. substitute, was named, uh, or the, the, the fifth Ruttle was Lepo. That was, uh, that was also always something that I thought was uh, quite funny. The, the Marx Brothers... The Marx Brothers reference, the fact that they had a fifth rattle making it historically accurate. And actually, that photo that they show of the five of them in Hamburg was based on a very famous photo that Astrid Kircher had taken of the Beatles while they were in Germany at the time. And coming back to what I was saying earlier on about Ollie Halsall, who was a member of the recording band of uh, the Rattles, but didn't appear in the film because Eric Idle was his face and and doing all the acting there but ollie halsall they give him the brief cameo of being lepo in the in the photo so i thought now speaking of the fifth beetle where was where was the billy preston character oh there you go so they didn't quite get it all right they should have had him on the roof shouldn't they right Maybe if they'd invited Blind Lemon Pie to join them or something. And just coming back to something that you said earlier on, Bernie, because you were talking about Rutland Weekend Television and you'd had the history with Monty Python and that's part of, I guess, every British comedy fan who grew up at the time were highly steeped in uh, Monty Python. It's been so for many years since. I tended to think that the humour that was going for in Rutland Weekend Television and a lot of ways in this film... I'd sort of say it's got maybe less of the Python influence and it's probably going for a lot more something like Mad Magazine. And that's probably because of the Saturday Night Live connection, the American connection. But I, I guess yeah, there's something of them. What do you think? That's something I actually uh, I wanted to mention because it's uh, Rutland was, from what I recall, was maybe it was kind of less surreal than Python. Right. And it was a little bit more zany, perhaps. Um, and what I thought was interesting about All You Need Is Cash is that you've got that sort of established Python-esque uh, humour kind of butting up against that Saturday Night Live type humour. Mm-hmm. And right. they're quite different beasts. And I wondered what you guys thought, whether it was successful in that or not. Well, here's something to add to this. Uh, you know, just in my opinion, if, if this had been an actual, like, written piece... It would have been a National Lampoon. Sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. And I think Na- National Lampoon is kind of the bridge where you're, you're talking about the Python humor and the Saturday Night Live humor. And I think that that's kind of what, you know, like this is closer to National Lampoon to me. Because National Lampoon, they were always known for doing those kind of pseudo articles that, you know, were really almost authentically mocking or taking the piss out of an actual event. I mean, there was so much of National Lampoon that was they were just known for that, for doing things up almost perfectly, pitch perfect send ups of of things. And well, I so, think, um, like like Morris was saying, that uh, Rutland was closer to uh, Mad Magazine. Uh, National Lampoon was kind of like the grown-up, sophisticated New Yorker version of Mad Magazine. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I guess. I mean, look, 
National Lampoon is a very good comparison. I mean, I, I did say Mad Magazine, but I guess what I was trying to indicate that it was more satirical in the American magazine sense. Both of them were, yeah. as opposed to the Python. And Surreal is a very good description. Yeah, Rutland Week Intelligence was less surreal in some ways. But I think that there are a few gags in this that don't quite work because they are a little too python-esque and odd and they feel a little out of place i I can't think of anything specific now i've said that but there was a few occasions where i thought ah okay that one that one didn't quite work did it so i don't know if you guys feel the same but well um, it was some of it was regional i think like for example when yeah they went off to meet the maharishi i mean not the maharishi but the uh what's his name the surrey mystic yeah the surrey mystic i mean if you're from england that's funny Arthur Sultan and uh, Arthur Sultan, the, the Surrey mystic. I look, I, I just found that hysterically funny because I mean he's the sort of guy who I've seen tons of times in seventies British sitcoms. He's the guy with Absolutely. the tre- the guy with the trench yeah. coat, the guy with the peak cap. Yeah. He looks Henry like Wolf. Henry. Yes, yes, that was it. I, what else is what else has he done, Colin? He'd been in in Rot- Rotland as well. But he's 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 an exemplar of those amazing British actors who sort of step between like Harold Pinter, sort of Beckett, and then they yeah, go into right. comedy on TV, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. So right. there's it's just a wonderful bunch of them. There's a couple of others in here who, who, who take the same boxes, but this is the as you've all been saying, the sort of odd mix of SNL people yeah. with. The Python people, and then with you know Barry Cryer, who's a big British figure, as Dick Jaws. You know, there's just this. It's an amazing mix. The only other place you would would get it is in the you know like sort of you know Casino Royale, the '60s movie, or sort of you know the sort of you know Monte Carlo or Bust, where you get these American comedians and British comedy actors mixed up together. And it's, it's funny, a, the Surrey Mystic always, when I saw him, he reminded me of, he looked just like um, Moon in uh, Tommy, Uncle Ernie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> oh, I was going to say Ronnie Corbett, but no, I think your, yeah, your yeah. call is much better. Yeah, absolutely. I'm your Uncle Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> and only Eric Idle, out of anyone in the Python team, I think could have pulled this off because he had a foot in both the music world. He was, I mean, he was friends with George Harrison and, you know, he obviously had the comic connections because, you know, he was the comedian and uh, he was part of the Python team. But right. he was always friends with George Harrison. I think he might have even – George Harrison might have – They were together with – what was it? Campuchia? Was Eric Idle on the concert for Campuchia? I think he was part – they were doing stand-up. I think part of that was with Campuchia. I'm not exactly 100%, but I think I think they were involved in doing – Stand up skits with Campuchia, or one of the one of the concerts that I know Harrison was involved with, because I know he did work with the, with the Pythons, you know. Right. Probably. It's interesting though that he never wrote any music in this, though. No, actually, he didn't perform any music, but there was another song that wasn't in the film that uh, I think if you look it up on YouTube, I can't remember what they called themselves, but it was like a, they refer to it at the end of the film when they're saying, what are they doing now? And you see Dirk McQuickly, the Paul, Her- uh, the Paul mm. McCartney character uh, with a pin through his nose and he'd taken up punk. But I think that they recorded <laughs> a song that was with Eric Idle and Ricky Fatah, who played the George Harrison character, uh, Stig O'Hara, and they did a they did a song. I can't remember what it's called, but it's because it's not on the Rattle soundtrack. But that one actually is the only thing that Eric Idle lends any of his vocals or musical skills to. You can find it on YouTube. Now here's a here's a question that I have that was bugging me. 
you know, obviously, you know, the film was released without any lawsuits or anything like that, and Harrison was involved. But is there any any documents of the response of the other three Beatles? I can answer all those yeah. questions. There, there was. Sure. There was legal. Or is this looking the same place I am? Oh, well, okay. so, some of this I knew. Some of this I had done the research. I mean, look, obviously, George Harrison, who had the best sense of humor in the group, he went and financed The Life of Brian, for goodness sake. So, Handmade yeah. films, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. 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 He, I think yeah. he started handmade films to get The Life of Brian made. But yeah, uh, apparently, Paul McCartney didn't want to speak to Eric Idle about it. Ringo, I can't remember if it was Ringo or John that had said that the the sequence that George appears in where all their gear is being stolen out of the Rattlecore building hit a little too close to home. And when you went and watched years later the Beatles anthology film, and they're telling that whole story about how you know they, they started Apple as a business to help struggling filmmakers authors, musicians, anyone who was in the arts, even people who were inventing things. So people in science, they said, we'll give you the money. And the general public just went to town thinking suckers and they went and stole everything from them. So that bit, once again, historically based on, it's based on fact, but I I think it was either John or Ringo who said that that bit just gave them the shivers. It was, it hit a little too close to home, but George Harrison was all too happy to actually play the interviewer in that segment speaking with the Michael Palin character. There have been continued allegations that Ruttle Corps is going bankrupt. Eric Manchester, the Ruttle's press agent, are these allegations true? No, no. No, they're, uh, they're conjecture, you know. They're, they're sort of rumour. I think you find that where you get success, you'll always find this sort of rumour. No. So the stories of the theft... They're not true also? Uh, no, they're greatly exaggerated, greatly exaggerated. Uh, it's bad, you know, things are going. But uh, nothing like the rate that, that people indicate. In terms of uh, how things went legally, I'd always wondered that myself. And I remember, so I bought the record a long time ago, which has 14 of the songs. But the CD, which came out in 1990, I bought that. And there's another six songs, which wasn't on the record. And I remember at the time listening to the song Get Up and Go, which was an obvious parody of Get Back. And at the time I thought, hang on, unlike the other songs, which structurally and rhythmically you can get what they're parodying, but this one actually had too much of the melody of Get Back.
funnily enough, I think John Lennon had warned Eric Idle, not from a position of, hey, you're stealing my intellectual property or the band's intellectual property, but as a friend, he was saying, look, I'd be careful about that. That one's a little bit too close to the real thing. But because that song didn't get released on the record at the time, I don't think any of the publishers sort of paid them any attention. And I think that... Yeah, but apparently, you- um, so I'm just looking here, apparently Lennon said to Neil Innes that Get Up and Go was too close to get back and to be right. careful not to be sued by ATV Music, who, were, who owned the catalogue at the time. So that's why they didn't put it on the original soundtrack LP. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if that was the reason, or that was just one of several songs that they weren't going to put on anyway because they couldn't oh, put okay. every, everything All on right. uh, on a record at the time. I, I look. I sure. probably don't know, but this is probably as good a time as any to actually sort of discuss some of the music because the songs, if you're a Beatles obsessive, you can listen to a particular song and think, right, okay, I know what that's parodying it. But melodically, there, apart from maybe Get Up and Go, the songs aren't always like a, a, an obvious. It, we're not doing. They're not doing a weird Al Yankovic where they're taking the no. original melody and putting new words to it because they would have had to have given Lennon and McCartney publishing rights at the time. But Neil Innes very cleverly took rhythmic structure, or he might have had a guitar tone that was similar to uh, a specific song. So, like the song "Let's Be Natural." you know straight off that that's Dear Prudence because it has Lennon's guitar tone. But let's go through, and uh, I want to ask you guys, what's your favorite songs that they did, each each song? I mean, do you have one specific song that you like above the rest? For me, probably Piggy in the Middle, the the, the, the I Am the Walrus bit. And I want to actually come back to that because I want to discuss that bit in the film. But yes, that's my favorite. Bernie uh, Colin? I really liked um, I like Cheese and Onions. That's what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yep, sorry. Actually, Cheese and Onions is the Yellow Submarine sandwich bit. Yeah. So Big in the Middle was a tragical history tour thing. But they're both great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
exactly. There's two bits. There's great. There's great tunes, and there's amazing hooks in these. Like, like you know, the alternative universe thing. Like, I think Gustav Mama, hold my hand. The drumming on hold, hold my hand, and the guitars on I must be in love and let's be natural. Just some really great songs. And for me, lo- loving, you know, I love music the most thing in the world, and comedy. So comedy music is just like that's Nirvana. So the one song, as you all say, is Cheese and Onion, is the perfect example of the, for me, the most perfect comedy music song. It's beautiful music, and yet you, you've got this little tickle going on, you know, with Cheese and Onion, the sing-along right. piece, you know, and it's so. There's many parody songs, but that to me is the example of it. That's what comedy music is. It plays on all the levels, you know. Right, right. You know what's weird, though, is that that song in itself is very, very similar to that song that Neil Innes did, uh, How Sweet It Is to Be an Idiot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's on the that's on the Python live at Drury Lane. That's the one. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's so it that the whole melody of it all is very, very similar to Cheese and Onions. Well, like, he, he's allowed to steal from himself. Oh, I know, but it's just it's just <laughs> when I heard because, but for years that bothered me because I I would hear that song and I'd go, where have I heard this before? Then then one day it was like. Holy shit, cheese and onions. Like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. A bit, of, uh, a bit of a tangent here, but do, do any of you guys remember a thing called the Innis Book of Records? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't yeah. seen it oh. since I was a kid, but I do remember that. It was like these weird little 10-minute short films, which Neil Innes... Um, oh, I'm thinking of something different. So I was thinking of a book, a Neil Innes book. So no, 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 no. It was, it was something that was well. seated uh, back in the what, early 80s, perhaps. It was basically a couple of Neil Innes songs, which he would write and perform. And then they were weird little short films or almost kind of videos for uh, for each song. Um, and they would just kind of crop up in between programs from what I seem to remember. I need to go back and investigate those. But I remember, um, I think, the Bonzo song, Urban Spaceman, showed up on there. Right, right. And I'm pretty sure How Sweet It Is To Be An Idiot showed up on there as well. Right. So I wonder if they're on YouTube or something, perhaps. I can tell that all of Rapland Weekend Television is on YouTube. The entire, or both seasons, the entire series is on the okay. YouTube. I just want to come back to the songs for a, a couple of minutes. So, Colin, you were saying that you thought that it hit the exact sweet spot of what a good comedy songwriting is. But I think for me, what I think makes these songs work so well, and you've already gone and said that they bear repeated listenings. One thing I've always loved about this album is that they they don't try to be like your typical comedy song. It's not like a Weird Al Yankovic parody where he's deliberately trying to sing something that's funny. I think that these songs, it's a fine line between serious or, or between straight and comedy. I, I don't think, I mean, apart from maybe, you know, singing Ouch or... I don't think that there's much that's actually funny about these songs. And that's what I think makes it work is I think Neil Innes is playing it straight. He's giving these straight songs in a comedic circumstance with the story of the rattles and all the funny things that are going on around them or the recognition of what is happening between this universe and the Beatles universe. So I think a song like Cheese and Onions, which sounds funny in one way, it's it's a piss take maybe of the ridiculousness of some psychedelic li- uh, lyrics. So you listen to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which right. Cheese and Onions is supposed to be the parody of. And you know, if, if the Rattles had gone and said, newspaper taxis appear on the shore waiting to take you away, then <laughs> that would have been funny in that context, in the Rattles context. Or if the Beatles had gone and sung, 
I've always thought in the back of my mind, cheese and onions, we would have said, wow, it's deep and meaningful and psychedelic, you know, it works perfectly on Sgt. Pepper. So right. that's why I sort of think that these songs work because they're stylistic parodies of what right. came before it. And it's not so much about the humor in the songs, it's humor in the context of... It was of, uh, just all those crazy yeah. kids drinking their yeah. tea. Let's let's talk about that's that's a great thing imbibing tea rather than because that's the most radical thing that they could do rather than the Mary Jane. Well, what's lovely about Gary Weiss's choices is if you look at it, he actually goes away from the standard sixties flower children to like shots of these old men and railway right. workers. <laughs> oh yeah, everybody's drinking tea. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. Like, but I love I love how they I love how they get the Paul character and he's just like well I'm not gonna lie to you you know like sometimes, sometimes I drink tea and I have biscuits too I mean <laughs> so what's that I, Idol's not Idol's not a great actor yeah so like Stanley Kramerheads what you know it's just a thin thing but what's lovely in this is that you know as the presenter he he can he can manage it within his right. his range. But where his range is really good is exactly that one, the biscuits, the naivety, the, the hurtness of, of, of the Dirk McCartney. You know, that's Eric for me there. That's, oh, yeah. that's when he's, he's playing to his strength, whereas in other places he's just a bit thin. But that one yeah. and biscuits is lovely. You know yeah. what he reminds me of as the presenter? He reminds me of uh, the current guy, uh, John Oliver. Absolutely. I just got John Oliver all over this guy. You know, it was funny. Uh, well, that that kind of uh, presenter guy that Eric Idle um, plays in this, I mean, he's been doing that right the way since Python, hadn't he? Yes. Think about it. There's quite a few Python, uh, Python sketches where it's that same sort of current affairs type format with someone walking with a microphone and a trench coat talking about uh, whatever the uh, the issue happens to be. Yeah, it makes perfect sense that he would do that with this. One other sequence in the film that I think really bears some sort of at least you know discussion or recognition coming back to what we were talking about the authenticity was the yellow submarine sandwich. I mean they could have done this whole film without any reference to yellow submarine at all but not only do they bring it into the into the film but there's this whole two and a half minute sequence and it is so dead spot on with the characterization from the original Yellow Submarine. I think there's even one bit where you you remember in the original Yellow Submarine where they're doing, they're showing the Eleanor Rigby sequence just as all the people are getting out of the factories and you see, it's almost like a camera angle, which goes down as you see the streets and the the, uh, (laughs) chimney stacks of Liverpool. And in this little clip, you get even that little camera angle come down and just a mixture of things. It's, so spot on and, and real. I, I'd be interested. I don't know if you know anything, Colin, whether it was the same animation house that was involved with Yellow Submarine that had anything to do with Yellow Submarine Sandwich. Did they go back to the source? I didn't do any research on that. As far as I remember, it's credited to something like the Little Film Company is on the. I think that's the credit on the end of All You Need Is Cash. Okay. There was a, a big a big write up in Mojo a couple of years ago that did a full details of all of it. I didn't go back and do the research to check. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if it's not the same people, they did a spectacular job. Oh is yeah. It? Um, it really just looks like an outtake or some unused footage, doesn't it? From Yellow Submarine, it was stunning. It really was. And even the little detail of you know, oh that's torn it. You know that yes, little yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> For a while, three chapters of the Redditch Hells Angels lived in the basement at Ruttlecourt, 
before Stig had the nerve to ask them to leave. Who hurt Stig? One of the girls. Who? Big Valerie. We're very upset, but there's not much we can do about it. Why not? Well, she'll thump me. We've done very scattergun approach to this discussion, but there's so many things in. We could have made this a three-hour episode if we'd gone in a more orthodox fashion, but I'm sort of glad that we didn't because we wanted to cover as many little bits and pieces as we could. And so, any final things that you all want to bring to the table that we hadn't already discussed? Well, I was going to say there's things that are, I was looking at what what's dated, not really working. Like, ouch, doesn't really work for me, and the, the, the upset, the apple cart, it's just silly. <laughs> And then I was looking at, you know, the classic sort of Python 70s sort of uh, sexism and stuff. And I was looking, oh, there's that crazy girl in the Reaper Barn who now is uh, Tanya Kostovich, who's, who's now mar- married to Eric Idle, of all things. <laughs> For me, the stuff that works blindingly is just perfection is blind lemon peel, rotten orange peel. Oh, yeah. I spoke with blind lemon pie. Well, everything I learned, I learned from the ruffles. From the Ruttles, really? Yes, everything. But surely you were singing the blues back in the early 30s? No, I was working on the railroad. I worked on the railroad for 30 years or more until I heard the riddles. Then I decided that that's my type of music. I'm going to leave the railroad and I became a musician and I've been starving ever since. So... Where did Ruttle music originate? Next door. That's, that whole sequence just is, is, is flawless in every, every piece. It's so unexpected and it works fantastically. But for me, you know, it's become a standard for this sort of celebrities in on the joke thing. We see it a lot. Paul Simon really doesn't add anything to this. But Mick is superb. He's totally convincing. He's mm-hmm. not mugging. What he says is funny. And he's got full of these little details when he says, you know, like, 20 minutes off helicopter back to the work hotel two birds each and you can hear they're laughing in the background and he's about to burst out laughing you know it's just that that he's he brings he brings such really for me real joy to it it's like because he's not mugging he's just he's just really enjoying it right i love that bit when he says you know they went away for 20 minutes and came back and brought us a song and it was terrible and we didn't (laughs) record it (laughs) (laughs) i written an article in q magazine that Mick Jagger had said basically what he would have said about the Beatles. He was there, unlike Paul Simon. The Paul Simon thing was a fiction, whereas the Mick Jagger thing, he was really basically just replacing the word Beatles with Ruffles, and everything that he said was completely factual. And that's why, that's why it works so well. At the end of a comedy film, there's the topper, you know, the biggest joke. And Mick gets it, you know. Would, would they, will they ever get back together? I hope not. And that look and smile on his face, you know. That, that's the topper of this movie is Mick. But do you think his, um, his kind of uh, – he seemed a little altered in this, shall we say. Was that just a general demeanor in 78, or do you think he'd had some kind of chemical help before filming? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? And we have to point out that his old lady's in the film too, Bianca. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As Eric yeah. Idle's as Eric Idle's wife. Yeah. Slightly uninterested wife, yeah. Actually, one thing that I read once again in this Q magazine article, it said that everyone's brother, sister, or spouse was dragged onto the set as an extra. So she just happened to be a more high-profile spouse. But uh, there, there was a lot of uh, family inclusion in this film. And I also have to count... Um, that not only was Belushi, Aykroyd, Billy Murray 
but uh, Franken and Davis, Al Franken's in this too. Yeah. He's he's one of the other guys that's back in Belushi. When Belushi comes in, his Belushi's bodyguards was uh, Franken and Davis. Right. Yeah. That's hilarious. I mean, like, there's so many, so many people here that just come, come out and come on set, and then they're gone for a minute. Wait a minute, you too? Like, it's just if you have, if you really don't know, you know, about the the background of the pedigree of this film, and you start watching it, it's like people start showing up out of the blue, and you're like, who's gonna be next? And then you start thinking, okay, if if Billy Murray is in the screen, then Dan Aykroyd can't be far behind. There he is. And Danny Aykroyd's there. Well, then Belushi's got to be. And there he is. You know, and it's like, and then Gilda's got There she is. You know, it's no, I and think a very rare appearance of Lorne Michaels as well as the merchandiser. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's great. When he's sitting there with the cigarette and the drink in his hand, he's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why, uh, why do you think uh, Chevy Chase didn't show up in this? Do you think his ego was already too big at this point to have anything to do with this? Or I actually go? think that there's that Chevy Chase would have been the Dan Aykroyd guy. So why do you have to be such an asshole? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, you're you're absolutely right. I think this film was a gold standard for you know not just mockumentaries but documentaries. I mean the whole this the way they set this thing up was just brilliant. I mean you couldn't you couldn't have done this better. And I think you know they get so much mileage out of this film. I mean like you know there's a lot of things when you go back and look at them they they date poorly, but I really think that this doesn't. That's partly because the Beatles have never left the public consciousness. It seems like there's always a documentary. And it should also be pointed out, I don't even think that there was a Beatles documentary made before uh, the Ruttles film had come out. I know that in the early 80s, there was a video cassette release only film called The, the Complete, C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, Beatles, which was narrated by Malcolm McDowell. And that came out after the Ruttles had come out so there was a documentary about uh, the alternative universe Beatles before the real Beatles but wasn't there uh, there was a story what? that uh, Eric got shown the footage for something called The Long and Winding Road by Ringo and that actually that meeting was the inspiration for this uh, for, well for, uh, which then became anthology many years later I think that was the original title um, actually, we've, I'm very embarrassed that I didn't bring this little uh, factual nugget in earlier on, but another connection between um, uh, Neil Innes, the Pythons, and the Beatles was, well, not so much the Pythons, but Neil Innes, uh, you've already gone and mentioned, Tim, you know, with uh, the Urban Space Cowboy and the, the Bonzo Dog Doodah The Bonzos, band. yeah. And yeah. so at one point in the abysmal Beatles film Magical Mystery Tour, the Beatles go into a strip club, and who is the house band? The Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, doing the song Black Cab for Cutie. There you go. I had to bring that little tidbit in, but I know that any of uh, my friends who are Beatles obsessives are going to thinking, you went through that whole show without bringing that in? <laughs> so, all right, duty dispensed. So, everything, that's it, everyone? Um, I very much liked John Halsey's kind of appropriation of Ringo's drumming style. The way he would play the hi-hat was oh, exactly yeah. the same as Ringo. He had that down absolutely pat, I thought. Yeah, and so, he had that he had that loose neck down perfectly, you know. Yeah, like yeah. That, that, that broken neck with his head just wobbling, left, you know, left <laughs> and right, you know, like. Yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, really, I think out of the four of them, the only one who sort of didn't convince me as having paid as much attention to the real Beatles was Eric Idle. So you had Neil Innes bobbing up and down like John Lennon would have and uh, Ricky Fattah 
sort of moving from side to side, like especially when you look in the early material, like in I Must Be In Love, danced just like George Harrison would have. And you've already got to see, you know, John Halsey doing the Ringo thing. But I think that Eric Idle sort of tried a little bit too hard with you know, how he moved his bass and yeah, right. not, comple- not completely convincing, but um, really, I, th- I think he got most else right. So, you know, we can forgive him for that. All right. Uh, one other thing, which um, I'm surprised no one else has mentioned here, but uh, we are recording this episode on Paul McCartney's birthday. Uh, but it's not being released on his birthday, so you know, happy yeah. birthday, Paul, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Seventy. I just thought it, it was it? interesting that the, the fates would bring us together to uh, to talk about the rattles on his birthday. Yeah, and, and he was uh, the one Beatle who doesn't actually like this film, so. Um, well, I, I wonder yeah. when somebody's, somebody's <laughs> going to come out with the Wings film. One of the things oh, I really love are shit biopics. I absolutely yeah. adore. And there are to- there are dozens of Beatles ones or Beatles-related ones. I'd, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to have hunt them out. And there's a particular Linda and Wings biopic, which is pretty awful. Oh, and then really? there's there's a, they appear as a significant sequence in the Mia Mio Fa- Faro biopic. Um, which is called Betrayal of Love. These are, um, they all sound like a kind of made-for-TV type movies, are they? Yeah, but you um, know, the, in the way that the fidelity yeah. of this is brilliant, those awful biopics where the hair and the design is all wrong. It looks yes. like you know Dewey Cox, that um, the Beatles right. sequence in Dewey Cox. But yeah, there's a fantastic sequence of Mia and uh, Prudence go to India, right. and uh, the Beatles turn up. Um, <laughs> Oh my god! I went. So, do they do something in that film? Like, what do you think, Paul McCartney of the Beatles? Probably the one bit that I still remember out of Dewey Cox. The rest of it was meh. All right. Um, thus endeth. See here, forty-two. Our discussion mm-hmm. of the Rattles. All you need is cash, and we've had, I think, a ton of fun uh, discussing this film. So. Our thanks and gratitude go to you, uh, Colin, for joining us for this episode. And you'd be a welcome guest back anytime. Well, you're going to come back when you come to talk about your film about Joe Strummer for sure. But even if you just want to discuss someone else's film, you'd be uh, welcome back anytime. Absolutely, a pleasure and a privilege. It's it's been it's been, it's been a weird experience um, partaking because <laughs> normally I'm sort of sitting here listening and shouting at you. <laughs> Oh, you're I, wrong. You're wrong. You don't get it right. What the hell's wrong with you guys? Right? Is something like that? Well, we appreciate you keeping the shouting to a minimum today, Colin. So yeah. it was all off air before we started. You got it out of your system. Yeah. And we and we don't even need to make the podcast rating explicit. No. You can say something before you go off the air if you want. <laughs> no. Honestly, yeah, no. I'm, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm a massive fan of music and comedy, and uh, music films and stuff. So finding your podcast was always great. I am a fan of it. It's really privileged to be here. Oh, oh thank you, man. That's awesome. It was, it was, so much. It was our awesome. privilege, and I, I just sort of got to say for you know the, the listening audience that one of the it was a really exciting thing to get your correspondence. I think maybe it was about six months or so after we put the Good Vibrations episode out and a big shout out to Hank Hellman who uh, did that episode with me because he went and wrote went and wrote me a note saying, oh, I've just listened to your Good Vibrations episode and I'm so very, very happy and I wrote back saying, oh, well, 
that's I'm glad you enjoyed it, but why are you so very happy? And you went and said, well, I was actually story editor on the film and just blew my mind right there thinking, wow, we've got someone in the community who had some creative involvement with a, a film that we covered on the show. So that was very, very exciting. So I, I think we've been waiting a long time to get you on and I'm glad that you were happy to be a part of this one. So hopefully not so long to your next appearance. All right, so just quick uh, housekeeping details. If you want to write to us, you can send us an email at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. You can download the show from iTunes, see here, S-W-E-H-E-A-R, or you can get it from seehere.podbean.com or whatever the podcast catcher of your choice is. And I think that's about it. Uh, you guys want to go out with a rousing four-part harmony rendition of any of the songs from the film? No, thanks, Morris. It's fine. Okay. I just thought I'd ask. Um, one of these episodes... You I'm keep gonna... asking, and it's, it's just it's not ever going to happen, Morris. Yeah. You can keep asking, you can keep badgering, but Tim and I are not ever going to sing for you. I'll get that happening. What do, you, what do you reckon, Colin? Would you be willing to give a rousing two-part harmony chorus or something with me? You don't want to hear my singing voice. I do, you know, but I'll take that as a no. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I love that um, that great story that people are saying, will there ever be a Beatles reunion? You know, and George says, well, if he asks me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, on that note, I feel good, I feel bad, I feel happy, I feel sad. Am I in love? I must be in love. Cheers, people. We'll see you uh, for episode 43 of See Here. It's all about the trousers. Good night. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.